0: what polluters are willing to pay for those permits to continue to emit is what sets the price in the program.
1: There was a time I had the right key, rolled the tumbler, through the gold on every wandering and I
2: caught. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Friday, December 17th. And I'm Adam Davidson. That was Stephen Cliff, the spokesman for the California
0: Air Resources Board. He was talking about California's new carbon cap and trade program
2: on KXTV in Sacramento. Today, an economist orders a cappuccino and is suddenly filled with doubt about one of the very cornerstones of his profession. But first, our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator... 3.5%.
1: That's how much interest 10-year Treasury bonds are paying this week, which is the highest it's been in more than six months. Now, this is a classic planet money
0: indicator because the interest rate on a 10-year Treasury bond is one of those data points that finance professionals get all worked up about, but the average person and a broad-reaching show like ours should normally not care about at all. But right now, the interest rate that the U.S. government pays on 10-year Treasury bonds, you could you could argue that is one of the most crucial pieces of information if you want to know if the economy is going in a good direction or a bad direction. So, the 10-year Treasury bond going up, the interest rate going up, is that—is that, is that Good or bad. I might think it was bad because that means the U.S. government has to pay more money to borrow money. That means it'll take longer for us to pay off our debt. So that... That's not good for the U.S.
1: government, right? It's, it's not good for the U.S. government. That's true what you said. At the same time, I think there is a, a broader picture where it is actually a good thing. And that, that looks like this. You know, during the crisis, when everybody got basically scared about everything, what they did was they bought treasury bonds. They said, U.S. government, we're going to give you our money. We don't care if you pay us 2% interest. We don't care. We just, we just want to feel safe.
0: Because we don't trust the Greek government. We don't trust city bank bonds. We don't trust anyone else. We just trust you. Yeah, and
1: we sure don't want to put our money in the stock market because who knows what's going to happen with that. So what's happening now, people are getting a little more optimistic. They're saying, you know what? The economy is, is looking okay. Yeah, there's still a lot of problems, but, but we're getting more hopeful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my money in the stock market, or if I'm going to lend it to the government, I'm going to demand higher interest. So, so that's good. Okay. I buy that argument. The thing that
0: puzzles me, though, is you know, we, we've talked a lot on this show about quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve spending $600 billion, specifically in many cases on this, on the 10-year Treasury bond. And and what the Fed has said is we want to get cash out in the system, and we also want to keep long-term interest rates lower. Mortgage rates are often tied to the 10-year Treasury bond, and so they want to keep mortgage rates lower so that more of these foreclosed homes can get sold and processed and, and our economy can get healthy again. So- The whole point of quantitative easing is to lower 10-year Treasury bond interest rates, but you're saying they're higher? Does that mean that quantitative easing, QE2, is not
1: working? You know, there's been a really interesting debate about this exact question in the last week or two. and, And a lot of people are making exactly the argument you made. Look, the Fed said we're doing this to keep interest rates low. Now we see interest rates are going up. Therefore, the Fed has failed. There's this other broader argument that, that sort of goes to the point I was making before, which is the Fed's big picture goal was to tell the world, look, we're going to do whatever it takes to get the economy going again. And now we're seeing, we're seeing the stock market rise. We're seeing economists increase their estimates for growth next year. We're seeing various optimistic signs. So by that broader measure, you can say, you know, the Fed wanted the economy to come back. Now we're seeing signs that the economy may be starting to come back and these higher interest rates are part of that.
0: You know, David, you were a physicist, a scientist in a previous life, and and in science, you like falsifiability, right? You you have some theory, and you can prove that it's true or false based on the outcome of, of some test. Here we have the Fed saying we're doing X, Y, and Z to lower interest rates, and you will know they exist because interest rates go up or go down, or we'll know they've failed because interest rates went up or went down. I mean, this is what It's so frustrating about economics, right?
2: You know what it's like? It's like string theory. The string theorists have come (laughs) up with ideas that are so complicated, they can only be tested in 10 dimensions, and therefore they will have tenure forever because no one will ever prove they're wrong. So I think we're going to have the Fed for a while. So Ben
1: Bernanke is like the string theorist uh, of the economy. It's like if we had 10 dimensions, we could prove whether the Fed is is doing anything good.
2: His analog in the physics world is a guy named Ed Witten at Princeton.
1: Look it up on the internet. Jacob, thank you so much. Thank you, guys, for that unusually wide-ranging and fun Planet Money Indicator.
2: All right. Thank you, Jacob. So, on to the cappuccino, the economist, and the doubt. So, Adam, you know, since the financial crisis, the largest economic event experiment in the last, I don't know, since the Great Depression, we're always saying, right? We've been asking economists, do you see the world differently? Did it change how you think? And basically, we haven't been able to find anyone who's really changed their minds.
0: Yeah, it's true. Every economist I talk to, everyone I can think of, just believes whatever they believed before only more intensely. And they believe the other side is even more wrong than ever. But we did find one economist who is beginning to rethink some things that he has written. That economist is one of our favorites, Tim Harford. He now writes for the Financial Times. He used to be at the World Bank. And he wrote one of my favorite introductory books about economics called The Undercover Economist. I always recommend it as a a basic intro to economics. And he is now doubting something he wrote in his very first chapter. And it has to do with a cup of cappuccino.
2: So the cappuccino story, which you're going to hear in a second, today makes him nervous but when he wrote it it was a story for him of pure wonderment and amazement and it, basically it's that when he orders a cappuccino and he looks at it he sometimes has this deep and sort of amazing thought about how it came to be and how amazing
3: it is that it even exists and you look at this cappuccino and it seems like such a simple object and then you realize there's there's actually nobody in the world who from scratch could make a cappuccino because it has milk in it so you'd need to be a dairy farmer it comes in a cardboard cup you need to understand the the pulping and recycling process that produces those cups it's got a plastic lid which is a totally different thing altogether it of course includes coffee not very much coffee these days but a little bit of coffee so you'd have to know how to uh, uh, grow coffee and roast coffee It's made with an espresso machine, which itself involves rolled steel and electricity. And that's a kind of a complicated thing as well. So if you're really going to start from scratch, from all the basic components, there is not a person in the world who could make a cappuccino. And that's a really important lesson about the way the world economy works.
0: So what he's getting at here is, I would argue, the central selling point of capitalism, of relatively free markets. The idea that order, that things like cappuccino and big screen TVs can emerge out of the chaos of millions of people making their own decisions.
2: And it's not just Tim Harford telling this story. Economists have been telling this story in various forms for years. There is a famous essay by this economic thinker, Leonard Reed. He wrote it in 1958 called I pencil. It's written from the perspective of a pencil. It's sort of trying to explain about how it came into existence. And at the time in the 50s, Leonard Reed was he was worried about communism. And what he was saying with this essay was this pencil. This is a capitalist pencil. This is not a communist pencil. This pencil was made efficiently as a result of market forces. And remember, in the 1950s, that sort of seemed like an open question. The Russians had just put Sputnik into space. And Americans were worried maybe you know maybe the Russians have a better system. Maybe central planning is better than better than the chaos of free markets
0: you know I've heard about central planning like in textbooks and history books and stuff, and then when I got to Iraq, I arrived like two days after the Saddam Hussein regime fell and i and Saddam ran his economy. Explicitly on the Stalinist central planning model. And I remember just right after the war, I went to this shoe factory that it hadn't been bombed, it hadn't been looted, all their equipment was fine, and the entire factory staff was just sitting in the lobby. They weren't doing any work. And I was like, why why aren't you guys making shoes? I, I just passed some kids who didn't have shoes. I'm sure they'd love shoes. And they said, well, We're waiting for the Ministry of Industry to give us our monthly production orders and tell us how many shoes to make. They had no concept of of a market system. And you can see how inefficient that would be. I met this guy at the Ministry of Agriculture. His whole job was to decide how much wheat should be grown in Iraq and who should get that wheat. And this crazy system of one or two people making these decisions that that determine industrial output is just so inefficient. It's just clear now that's not a way to run an economy.
2: Yeah. So this pencil story, this cappuccino story, that is one of the main selling points of capitalism. And in fact, one of capitalism's greatest salesmen, Milton Friedman, the Nobel economist, he loved to tell this story. In fact, if you Google Friedman and Pencil, you get a couple different videos. Here's one from 1978.
1: This is the only prop I have for this
2: TV show. As you can see, it's a plain yellow pencil. Friedman continues, and he says, when you go out and you buy a pencil for, say, a nickel, basically that nickel, in that transaction, it is being divided up among thousands, maybe more, all the people who had some tiny role in producing the pencil. The You think of the person who cut down the tree, the person who made the saw that cut down the tree, the person who mined the ore who made the saw. I mean, pretty quickly you get out to like the entire planet and they're all in a way getting a tiny piece of that nickel.
1: Note, these thousands of people who have been led to engage in this simple transaction with me, not one of them has been forced to do it. Nobody has had a gun to his head. They've all done it. Why? Because each one of them thinks he's better off in this transaction. And somehow or other I've done it because I think I'm better off. Everybody has benefited. There's been no central direction. These people who have cooperated with one another don't speak the same language. They're people of all different religions. They may hate one another in every respect, but this hasn't prevented them somehow or other from being led to cooperate together. It hasn't prevented some kind of a wonderful machinery from bringing together these various components all together into this little pencil.
0: So, what is this wonderful machinery, this coordination that isn't one person with a brain but somehow emerges from millions of people out there? How does the free market work? It's all about prices. Prices communicate a lot of information. Here's Tim Harford.
3: So the idea is, if a Canadian lumberjack fells some giant of the forest, he, he doesn't need to know whether the wood is going to go into IKEA furniture or into a pencil. If you have the, the driver of some, one of those vast um, uh, mining trucks in a Chilean copper mine with a big load of copper ore in the back and he's growling up the the incline, he doesn't care whether the copper is going to end up in telephone wire or the casing of a bullet. You know that nobody, nobody needs to know. It's like the market is this giant cloud computer that surrounds us everywhere and is constantly processing all the information about who wants what, who's a low-cost producer. The price system conveys all the information. Um, if bullet manufacturers. have a higher need for the copper, they'll outbid it. If the telephone cable manufacturers have a higher need for copper, they'll bid more. And that's where the copper will go. And the price system will sort all this out.
2: And, And the point is, there is no one person who knows how many pencils to make or at what price or whether pencils are more important than coffee tables. The information, it actually doesn't exist in one place. It is in all of our collective heads. It is the combination of the decisions that we make every day when we go out and decide to buy one thing or another.
0: Every day I and everyone around me is is constantly adding information to the system. I mean just this morning i chose one kind of sandwich over another and i'm adding my little bit of information to the system changing the relative value of turkey over ham or whatever. you can imagine it might be. somewhere
2: way down the line like some farm next year is going to make one fewer turkey or something right.
0: actually i chose the turkey over the ham right. so the one fewer pig.
2: good news it's for the pigs.
0: yeah exactly. and this idea that that the price signal is the best way to coordinate the distribution of of most goods in a system i I'd say this is now a very well-accepted idea. I mean, you can find, obviously, right-leaning libertarian economists, you could find left-leaning, you know, Paul Krugman, Joe Stiglitz, whoever. We just had that communist, you remember Richard Wolff, the communist economist on? He told me that now most communists believe the price signal is far better than central planning in figuring out how to distribute most goods. He said Karl Marx would love
2: the price system. (laughs) So so this is exactly why Tim Harford, five years ago when he sat down to write his book, The Undercover Economist, he was thinking, how do I start it? I'm going to start with the price story. I'm going to start with the cappuccino story because this is something that no economist doubts. Except that now, five years after he wrote the book,
3: he is starting to doubt. I I see the story very differently now. At the time, I was telling a very optimistic message. I think Leonard Reed was telling a very optimistic message. It was all about how amazing the market was. And I still believe that. Um, But I've come to this more pessimistic view because when you look at the world, Yes, the market's amazing. Yes, it does this this amazing information processing uh, performance. Yes, it beats central planning. It beats communism. We now know that. But is the world perfect? I don't think so. You look at climate change. You look at the banking system. Uh, There are complex problems that we face, economic development, a lot of very poor people in the world. And you go, actually, wow, those are really, really hard problems those are really hard problems. So, yes, the pencil, the cappuccino, they're a wonderful symbol of what the market can achieve. But they're also a symbol of how complicated the society is that we've created, the economy is that we've created, and how difficult it will be to make changes if we see something that needs fixing. What an what a incredibly hard problem that is, what a complex problem it is.
0: I've been reading a lot about the Industrial Revolution. At one point, one of the books made about how the Industrial Revolution changed the world is that before the Industrial Revolution, pretty much everything anyone ate or wore or owned, they either made themselves, hunted themselves, or they knew the person who made or hunted it or foraged it. And that is definitely a much simpler world. In everything, in your physical environment, you know exactly how it was created and who created it. But it's also a much poorer world it means you can only eat the stuff that's in your village which is why there were massive famines that killed lots and lots of people because you can't get food from some other village somewhere else you could only have health care to the extent that people in your village understood health care which obviously was was pretty poor so we get an awful lot out of this incredibly complex economy it means we can eat and wear and see and feel and, and enjoy things that are made by millions of people all over the world, totally uncoordinated, people will never meet and don't really have a concept of. But what Harford is saying, I think what all of us are experiencing after this financial crisis is a system as complex as this also means that we can be the victims of decisions made by people we'll never meet in faraway places. Bankers or investors or homeowners or whoever it might
2: be that can cause incredible pain to us in in our lives. I keep thinking about you know toxic our toxic asset right. I mean that was order out of chaos right. You had thousands of homeowners all over the United States. You had bankers in London. You had investors all over the world. All that's tied up in this like three hundred right, is three hundred pages of paperwork. But there's there's order there, and yet you know that was a bad thing that ended up being a total
3: disaster. I think the lesson. It's actually more of a respect for the complexity of the system a lot of economists viewed say the derivatives market or the banking system in a very abstract way and we don't really know exactly how it works but we know markets are cool so it's probably fine and we really didn't there are clearly exceptions to this but I think many of us really didn't go deep into the details and say well how exactly does this thing work how exactly are the safety systems supposed to operate? What exactly are the incentives? We tell people incentives matter. What actually are the incentives inside the financial system? I think too few of us really paid attention to those details. And those details really matter. What is the alternative
2: to um, the cappuccino and the complicated system that creates it? I mean, is there one or is it just something we're stuck with?
3: I think we're stuck with it. And I think uh, in almost all cases, that's great. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go back... 100 years. I know you've you've already had a great podcast with Tim Taylor about this. I mean, I wouldn't want to go back to a simpler economy. We, we have tremendous benefits from it. But I just feel if we are trying to solve problems in this very complicated economy, we have to understand that complexity and respect that complexity. And I think there are a few cases where simplifying purely for its own sake is worth doing. And I think the banking system is an example of that.
2: So, so you think if we were to encounter some advanced alien civilization with a very advanced economy it might actually be a, a simple one that they, they might have passed through some terrible period of crisis where complexity got the better of them and they ended up with
3: a simpler system at the end of it? Well, that's a great question. I, I think they might have simpler banks. Let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> so this brings up what continues to be one of the central debates of economics. How robust, how solid are markets when they're just left to themselves? And, and this is where we get at the point that, that most economists we talk to just believe whatever they believe before, only more strongly. The libertarian-oriented say, yeah, this financial crisis proves regulation is a disaster.
2: Yeah, the system is complicated. You're right it's, it's complicated. That's why government should keep its hands off it. Like regulation, that's central planning by a different name.
0: Exactly. And then the more left-leaning economists, you know, Paul Krugman, Joe Stiglitz, just as an example, say, see, final proof. The economy is too interconnected. It's too complicated. We need to manage it. We need to have regulations. We can't leave it up to the whims of a you know, few handful of bankers out there.
2: But I think Tim Harford is not really making a partisan point here. He's saying that the complexity that gives you the pencil of the markets – that is a double-edged sword. The beauty is you get the pencil with everyone just working on some tiny piece of it without having to see the, the big picture that they're making a pencil. But climate change is, is the same thing. It's, it's every person in their country doing their little thing, making their little choices, and they're not seeing the big picture.
3: One of the things I've been doing is looking at um, work that safety engineers and psychologists of industrial safety have been doing. So th- These guys look at oil rigs blowing up. To pick a recent example, a nuclear power stations melting down. And these are very complicated, interconnected systems, a bit like the economy. But they look at them in very different ways. And I think economists have tended to look at the complexity of the economy and go, oh, it's complicated. Isn't that great? Government better stay away. Whereas an engineer will look at a nuclear power station and go, wow, it's complicated. We'd better be really, really careful. And that's a different perspective. And I wouldn't say one perspective's right and one perspective's wrong. But I think there's a there's a lot of room for learning from each other. And certainly, I've learned a lot about the financial crisis by talking to guys who try and keep nuclear power stations safe. You wouldn't think there was a connection, but I, I have become convinced there really is.
2: Tim, you know, it's rare for us to talk to economists who have uh, really changed their mind or are rethinking something they really believed. And I feel like in you, we found someone who wrote a very popular
3: economics book, and you're rethinking chapter one. I am. I I mean, I wouldn't say so much that... Um, it wasn't that I said a bunch of stuff that was wrong. It's that I didn't pay attention to a bunch of stuff that was really important. So I have a chapter on you know, the dot-com crisis. And that now looks, that really looks like old news. But not only old news, but it, it looks really small beer compared with a financial crisis. So it, I feel my mistake was not to say a bunch of stuff that wasn't true. My mistake was that I just wasn't paying attention to what was really important. And
0: Tim, I want to thank you because for a second there, I thought I was talking to an economist who actually was
3: saying that they were wrong in the
0: past. And I'm, I'm glad to know that, that I'm, I'm still on an unbroken track record of not hearing that. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm sure I'll, I'll,
3: I'll, I'll figure <laughs> out something that I was wrong about and I'll let you know.
2: Okay. But something has changed It's all wrong. I'm out here in the cold with a wet face So rattling your
0: logs If you're an economist who'd like to tell us how you now think differently, how you think you were wrong about things, and and now you've changed your mind, please let us know. You can send it to the Ministry of Podcast Planning. (laughs) That
2: email is planetmoney at npr.org. And also on our blog, we have links to the original iPencil essay, also an excerpt from Tim's iCappuccino. That's how I'm calling this first chapter of his book. And we're going to have a link to the Milton Friedman video and this video of a guy Tim Harford directed us to who actually tried to make a toaster himself, from scratch, and it didn't go very well.
3: Hello, can I speak to Jonathan, please? Uh, he's underground at the moment. Oh, he's underground. Oh. Who's calling? Um, it's Thomas Thwaites. I'm calling from the Royal College of Art in London. Yes. Um... And, uh, well, uh, I'm sort of embarking on a project. I'm trying to make a toaster and, um, and I need to get some iron ore to uh, make the steel bits inside the toaster. Yeah. Um, and so I was uh, wondering if I could um, come down there and uh, get some iron ore. Yeah,
1: to come it. Can I? Black hole can your two eyes be empty as they look?
0: That's all on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum.
2: Thank you for listening. All
1: along I thought I was giving you my love, but you were just stealing it. Now I want back every single thing that you chose.